what's up? This is the 81st episode of Everyday Channel. With me, Julian, tonight I have my regular co-host, Callum, the Duff of Peace, Smith. Hey, Callum, actually, you know what? Before we start, actually we're gonna leave this in because I actually really wanted to make sure that I would pronounce your first name correctly. I got an app and the app was, <laughs> was gonna be like, oh, here, here we go. No, go type, on. oh no, no, I messed it all up. Maybe you, you introduce yourself then. <laughs> my name is... Caleb, no, it's not really. It's Callum, which is a very commonly mispronounced name, which Julian was calling me Caleb for like a year or two, but it's okay. Uh, people do it often. So yeah, good evening, everyone. I hope you're all doing well. Yeah, having a great day. Like summer has come to Europe. I, I guess it also came to, to the UK despite Brexit and everything. <laughs> it, it tried to get in. We tried to get it away because it, we try and push all good things away from us. But yeah, it's been really hot until this weekend. It's been pouring this week, this past weekend. And uh, it's pretty, it's the most perfect description of England right now. I'm looking out my window and it's just grey, windy and a little bit of rain. So, yeah, it's lovely. Uh, just your stereotypical England. Did you know that London yeah. actually sees much less rain than lots, like many parts of Germany and, and vast parts of Europe in general? Is that because of the like smog and stuff? Uh, <laughs> you think you got like a dome of smog over the city? Well, <laughs> No, uh, it's probably just for like... I was going to say cultural, no, for, for like natural reasons. <laughs> <laughs> there probably is a reason. Oh, well, I do notice the difference when I go to the countryside in the air pretty strongly. Like I'm so accustomed to London atmosphere and air that it just feels normal. But then when I go for a walk in the countryside or something, I'll go to a different country. I'm like, wow, it's so much nicer to breathe and be here. It's, it's lovely. So it sounds like when you when you go for a walk and you stroll into the countryside accidentally you find yourself in another country and like oh damn that, that was too, <laughs> i went too oh, far I'm, just in, I'm in germany by mistake how did that happen is, is that how you got all your colonies like 50 years ago oh, actually yeah no, no. totally we were just we went for a walk we we're taking our loved ones for a walk and whoopsie daisy here we are yeah uh, like eddie Izzard said you you colonized you stole countries by the cunning use of flags yeah, you shot up to India, you're going to be like, hey, I'm going to claim this Springland. And then the Indians, uh, the, 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 actually, how do you call, do you call people from India, Indians? That yes. sounds wrong. Okay, so. The Indians, yeah. So the Indians were like, no, wait, you, you can't do that. Like, there's a couple hundred millions of us. And then the British were like, well, do you have a flag? They're like, oops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how Get you do it. Awesome, yeah. man. What, what have you been up to lately? Uh, so I've been actually I've been playing loads and loads of M21 and drafting. I've in the last couple of years I've gotten very into drafting and I feel like it's improved overall gameplay and stuff. Like you, you learn about the combat step, which as a former like miracles lover, I wasn't great at the combat step. And uh, so yeah, I am like about 50 drafts deep into M21, which has been a blast. Uh, still playing some Legacy while I can. Um, but yeah, that's that's really taking up the majority of my f spare time after work and stuff. Oh, actually, I'm I've been getting into Warhammer 40,000 as well, which has been pretty fun. I'm sure. Oh, 40k, okay. Yeah, I'm sure we have some listeners that have been uh, they're into it as well. I've picked up Death Guard, the plague-ridden sons of Nurgle, which is pretty fun as well. So yeah, that's been taking up a lot of my time as well. Uh, and are you playing in? in uh, well, do you say in paper? No, on on tabletop. <laughs> in paper, or is it like on tabletop. It, tabletop works. I haven't played at all yet. I mean, I used to play as a kid, so I kind of remember the rules a tiny bit, and then I've read them again. But no, I've just been collecting and painting, and a lot of friends from Magic got into it because it was a really good hobby during downtime. When like Magic Online is fantastic, but when it got a bit too much, so I'm really, really excited to when we can start to meet up and actually play properly as well. 
Awesome, man. I only ever played like one game of Warhammer in my life and I played Wood Elves and I didn't even understand the rules. And <laughs> uh, I played, of course you played like, Wood Elves. Yeah, but th- th- that was like, actually, I always liked Elves and, and games. But yeah, yeah, so my friends were like, okay, this is like King of the Hill scenario. And after a random amount of turns, whoever is closest to this artifact or whatever wins the game. And I was just like running around. Everybody ignored me because I was horrible at the game. And then like <laughs> for some reason, like we, we had a random way to, to determine the, the turn where it mattered. And it was super unlikely that it would happen on the turn I was closest. And then I won. So I have a 100% nice. win streak. If that Respect makes sense. It. So a win is a I retired with honors. Cool. What about you? What have you been up to? Dude, I've been playing so much Valorant. You know, that's uh, how Riot went ahead and they released Valorant, which is the FPS, the Counter-Strike killer, yeah. I guess. And they, they also released, what's the the card game called? Red Legends of Runeterra or something? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen both of these games mentioned so much by people. Yeah, I haven't I haven't played Rune Thera yet, but they they're also gonna release a third game, which is gonna be a fighting game. But Valorant, it's just like, oh my god, I'm I've, I've been enjoying it so much. I, I've been playing it with my best friend almost every day. We play like I don't know three to five matches every day, really? and okay. it's yeah. I, I come from a like a really big Counter Strike background. Like I, my first online games used to be Quake, and then like for a very long time Counter Strike. When I couldn't imagine that my life would be defined by anything other than Counter Strike. But yeah. I mean, that's when I was seventeen. So <laughs> I would, I would say I'll pick it up and join you one time. But I think I'd be absolutely terrible. So, dude, we are really bad. We are. I think I'm in gold, gold three or something. But I've been losing a little bit today. A little bit, like I okay. lost like four games today. So, <laughs> and okay, maybe I won't join you. I'll, I'll find someone better. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Did, did, did you know? Like people in that game, they when somebody is playing like worse than their rank would indicate, then their teammates get mm-hmm. pissed. So they say, oh, you're boosted. And I, I thought, like, whatever boosted means. Like, maybe you play with, like, a better friend and then you get to a higher league. No, there's actually, and this is crazy. So here's my number. So call me, maybe, you know. <laughs> there's boosting services where you submit your password and everything. And they boost you to a higher league. So if you want to get into the high, if you're in the lowest league and you want to get into the highest league, that's 1,140 US dollars. Jesus. And then I don't know how long it takes. Like I would guess. So like someone logs onto your account and then just plays until they get you to a level. Is it? Yeah, and like the, the, the highest level is called so Radiant, and you get destroyed. Like that's that's basically like taking somebody out of their first ever game of Magic and putting them into Pro Tour Finals or something. Like yeah. even worse because there's not even like that much variance. I guess. I mean, that sounds like so much money that someone would ever pay to just level up in a game. But it probably does take the person playing that much time to be worth that much money. But I just can't imagine how someone would want to do that. That's it's crazy. Yeah, can you imagine like if, for the person who's getting paid, like you, you're just literally getting paid to, well, as we would say, own the noobs. <laughs> and <then> you, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Or just play a game. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing. Well, not well, not the the boosting part, more the like the playing part. Yeah, yeah. And I've also played a lot of Fs again lately. Like I got the, I think a five and old the other day. I also played Natural Order Band, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Natural Order yeah. Band really introduced me to the powers of Uro. Like I've been mostly on the receiving end of Uro, but holy mm. shit, that card gets yeah. you out of so many bad situations. I'm I'm a, I'm at the position where I mean this is very easy to go into like a whole segue of talking about these cards and how they affect legacy. But I've been of the opinion that Uro is miles ahead of Oko in power level for a while now. Definitely, it's, it's just insane. So, there are definitely yeah. like so many positions where I, I felt like, well, this is no matter what happens, I'm I'm just gonna be so ahead. Like I feel people should actually more often days Uro than they realize, even though it feels so bad. But it feels so bad to days the first Uro. But then you are trading a card for a card, and then the land he 
potentially puts in is just going to like make the days dead anyway. So they probably should, even though it's a really bad exchange. Maybe it's an argument for days being worse than usual in the format or something. I don't know. It, it feels yeah. so bad today's that first half though. But yeah. it probably you're right. It probably is correct. It's yeah, the acceleration you get out of it, it, it just I mean maybe it helped that I played a deck that would play Uro on the second turn quite often I had 12 accelerators and then if you yeah. play Uro on the second turn then you untap with 5 mana on the third turn and that's that's just like beyond crazy so to strong. me yeah, yeah. so Uro it, man, I, it's interesting uh, this card and Oko like introduced I think the legacy format to life gain when it's tacked onto a strong effect to actually be fantastic Battle Skull was the first one, but it was really like kind of half of the card was because you're gaining life. But now you just gain random bits of three life here and there with Uro and Oko. And it's the first. Okay, I'm gonna I stop think... you there. You 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 can't disrespect my boy Rock Swarmonk like that. Battle Skull. Oh, fine. Okay. First... <laughs> yeah, but, but that was when a three-four body was actually good, right? It's not anymore. <laughs> mm, it, you get six sixes for. It can block white and a cattle. It's true. It's true. But jokes aside, like myself included in the legacy format is waking up to incidental life game being pretty strong and effective against delver especially or aggressive strats so it's interesting it's an interesting development in legacy i never thought life game would be seen as a good thing but all it took was to be tacked onto a six six doesn't die draws cards thing <laughs> yeah, yeah i think one one part of that is that when you have a lot of awesome tap out stuff that you want to do at sorcery speed if the life gain gets you another turn of doing that, that's kind of crazy. Whereas, like, most of the stuff you do at instant speed is instant speed for a reason, right? Because the, the, the effect is usually slightly worse. Whereas if you if you can tap out for something on your main face and know that you're going to see your next turn no matter what, pretty much, that's incredibly powerful because then you know you're going to get to tap out a second time and just really reap the rewards of, of committing so much mana on your main face. And that's, I mean, that's something that's especially... Those Uro and Oko decks have been doing successfully. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. It is the ability to just keep slamming. Yeah, very good point. So we want to talk about something. Yeah, uh, other things. Um, yeah, like <laughs> I said, I've been playing playing elves. Been, I've actually learned how to repair my bike. Uh, YouTube is just. I, I don't know how the people did it in, in the Middle Ages, but like I just go on YouTube and I check out. Hey, how do I change this? How do I change that? To, today, actually, I re- removed my front tire and and repaired a couple of things. And like, but I hope it's gonna work. Like if I if I don't show up so tomorrow, if we don't hear from Facebook, you tomorrow, it's uh it's all over. It, then it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It is amazing. Every, YouTube has everything. It's it's sort of talking of Warhammer just very quickly. It's like uh, back in when I used to play it younger, as, as I was younger, you'd have to think of all the paint schemes on your own. You'd have to do uh, trial and error. But now you can go onto YouTube and find a tutorial and get some ideas like that. It's pretty amazing. So so you're saying you're basically just net decking? Yeah, I'm net decking completely. <laughs> <laughs> you're net decking but, your color schemes. <laughs> Another thing I forgot to mention that I've been doing is I did play a couple of challenges this weekend which is pretty fun. I've not been able to play a challenge in like well over a month, maybe even two. It's been ages. I've been like, since the UK has started to ease up on uh, COVID regulations, I've been either going to the parks, going out, trying to have a drink with someone outside. So I played Saturday and, and I picked up a deck, which I threw together on Friday at work because I was a bit bored. And we'll get to that in a second. I On Saturday, I went one, two, very, very bad. I was like distracted, not playing well at all. It's a good example of even if a deck has got potential, playing bad is just gonna it's gonna lose you matches. Like deep analysis there. But on Sunday, I managed to play. <laughs> That's what play people the tune in for. 
yeah oh yeah totally uh on sunday i played the same deck and managed to uh, get to the semi-finals of the challenge so six won the swiss losing to the urza echoes deck which we've talked about a bit before which is very powerful but i picked up shark blade is what we're calling it so it's a progression Dude, of the can we please call it shark control i know we talked about this <laughs> or did we but to me it's shark control shark blade okay Ah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know it's awful. I, I think they're all awful. But Legacies are, Legacies are format full of awful deck names. We've got to face it. Okay, Shark Control. But there is Stoneforge Mystic and a Blade in the deck. So um, it's a continuation of like the Standstill Shark Typhoon deck we've been seeing and we talked about on the previous casts. Uh, this time I was taking a theory of you the, the format's too fast that you want to be spending card like raw cards and raw mana on just raw card advantage so i was playing with the idea that you play all these good cards still but every kind of either threat or answer potentially like they all get you a, an extra card so the deck has stoneforge mystic which is a threat and it gets you a card advantage so in the deck i had two stoneforge mystics a sword of feast and famine and a battle skull we'll get to the sword later because it's an interesting one uh, other threats are teferi time raveler jace the mind sculptor and shark typhoon Again, these are threats that they get card advantage. Like Teferi doesn't always get the card advantage, but he comes with other advantages as well. Shark Typhoon cycles, Jake's brainstorms. Uh, then the answers, like you have your generic cards like the Cantrips and Counter Magic, but then Source of Plowshares. But then Snapcaster Mage is another answer which gains card advantage. So in the deck, which we'll link in the show notes if you want to follow along, there's no actual raw card draw. So there's no standstill, there's no predict. So the idea is you gain card advantage just by playing your cards to the board, presenting things, and you can pull ahead in in that kind of way. So I think the theory I think the theory is sound and it should be explored more, but I'm still not super convinced it's actually better than the standstill because drawing three cards is pretty damn good. Okay, so how, what was a common scenario where you were punished for the stand? Usually you don't end up being super punished for deploying the standstill. But I would think it would be harder to navigate yourself into a spot where you can even land the standstill on turn two. I guess spell yeah. snare helps with that, right? If you, especially if you're on the draw. Yeah, spell snare helps a lot, as you say on the draw. Um, standstill is pretty awkward. Like it, it comes to a point where there are Aether Vile decks in the format. There's Esper Vile and there's Goblins is now very, very strong. Uh, Delver is popular and a turn one Delver does mean you can't play a turn two standstill generally unless you like have a Shark Typhoon in your hand immediately to trade off on turn four. Oh, that would be so sweet. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty nice that Shark Typhoon lets you do that. If you have a Shark Typhoon and the lands you need in your hand already, you can play a turn two standstill into a Delver. You take some hits and then you cycle it for X equals two <laughs> and trade off. They can't daze it, they can't force it, so they might bolt it, but then you do get the standstill trigger. So it is possible, but they're just does seem a lot of plays that make standstill awkward so another idea i want to experiment with eventually is to play like two maybe three standstills as well because it is a good card advantage engine and the deck does just is able to play off like i think shark typhoon is at the point where i think this card is just fantastic and it's really good in the legacy format on its own so the deck had a hall of healers generosity in but i think you can cut that when you just have the shark typhoons like shark typhoon is just a good card and when you're already playing the Shark Typhoons, then you can rely on playing a couple of standstills as a card advantage engine extra. And the rest of the deck kind of just builds itself around it. Because uh, I think Spell Snare and Spell Pierce are pretty good in the format because the format is faster and presenting more threats. And well, we always have the Dreadcore Darkness problem, so Spell Snare helps there as well. 
Oh yeah, so, that's that, that's a really good thing because that's yeah. one card that that causes the entire format incredible headaches, right? It's it probably one of the very you, first um, things on your mind when you when you build a deck in Legacy right now. Yeah. So um, yeah, the, the the deck is operating off like the the theory that I said, but I think there are there are just more ways to take it. Stoneforge Mystic in the challenge yesterday was pretty good for me. Like I uh, played against Delver once, I played against Burn, obviously where it was great. It was just a good threat to play on turn four or five. And what surprised me was the Balaskal was fine, but the Sword of Feast and Famine <laughs> was fantastic. Yeah. Um, this is we're gonna. I'm going to jump ahead very quickly. So we had some uh, user, uh, some friends of the podcast questions. I'm going to jump to one very quickly now. So someone said, Young Toast on Twitter said, "What's the reasoning for Feast of Famine over Fire and Ice?" So, Sword of Fire and Ice is fantastic at put it, pushing damage. It's good in the blue white stone blade decks that have True Name Nemesis as well. So it's like really good closer. Um, you used to also be like you want to attack through True Name Nemesis when the card was played more. It like it the drawing cards are still very good and probably objectively you'd say that the trigger from dealing damage is stronger than the Sword of Feast and Famine's trigger. But protection from green is really good in the format currently. So this was my number one level one thinking, let's try this sword out again. So in the in the challenge I attacked through multiple green creatures, like uh, elks. Uh, Hooting Mandrills, Tarmogoyf, there's Ice Fankoatls, Uro. I mean, Oko can still plus on the sword, but it protects your creature. Should it be like a big shark or something? So um, <laughs> that was relevant. And the deck is reactive. So again, like Shark Typhoon plays to this thing where you want to be reactive. So the deck has two spell snares, a spell pierce, a counter spell, snapcaster mages, force some negations to hard cast. So it's really happy to have mana up. So the trigger to untap your lands is huge. You can get in. Uh, like play something pre-combat or mid-combat, snapcast a ponder or whatever, Teferi, Jace, whatever you want, play stuff, and then you untap your mana and you have all this counter magic up. So this deck especially is really using the effects of it properly. And it's also a fair deck that's just trading resources, so you're you're really happy for them to discard the card as well. Again, I, I played against Ant in the challenge as well, and the sword was just fantastic at grinding down the resources and letting me tap out to play a threat and then untap and have the counter magic up, so... Yeah, I was going to say, because especially in the first game, you would think that most Blade decks can have issues with combo decks, for example, because eventually they just get like overwhelming forces and you sit there with all your white spells and they don't do anything. But Absolutely. sort of Feast and Famine is like an actual threat to them. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I had a very bad hand in the game one and I just played the sword on turn three. I had a force and they just weren't able to kill me that turn. So that let me throw out a Snapcaster Maze the next turn and then I started to take over from there. So it's quite interesting. I want to see a scenario where you use your mana to hardcast Shark Typhoon in your main phase, then you untap using the Sword of Feast and Famine, and then you force this something is, on that turn. <laughs> oh, this is a scenario I, I completely dreamt up. And when I was putting in, I was like, actually, it was a legit reason. I, I talked to a friend about it before, and I was like, look, you can probably cast the Shark Typhoon and then hit them. Um, <laughs> hasn't come up yet, but it's pretty, re it's pretty realistic. So that's cool. So so you also played this in the, in the Sunday Challenge, and I think you said you top fought, right? Yes, yeah. So um, I do have the matchups, actually. I'll find them. So I came top four. Let me just pull up the matchups. And you didn't only play like against a couple of like cheap whatever decks, but you, you played against some legit no. decks, I would think. Yeah, it was. It was. So round one was against Snow, 1-2-0. Round two was against Yorion Bug, which was like basically Snow stuff, but had a green <laughs> in the package and loads of cards. Won that 2-1. Uh, I lost to Urza Echoes, 0-2. Uh, that matchup, I think in theory, like, there's four blasts in the sideboard. It's like splashing red for them. 
but Chalice of the Void is brutal against the deck, and I didn't have many answers for it, so that really that that's a yeah. deck building thing that needs. Basically, to you have like six forces on the draw, and then if they do it like turn two, you get spell snare and pierce, but that's that's already it. Yeah, and then Teferi bounces it, and Council Judgment exiles it, but it's not a great thing. Then um, yeah. I could see yeah, something they, like engineered they, explosives in the sideboard, I guess. Yeah, engineered explosives is reasonable. I should try a couple. But they they are just an amazing force check deck as well. They go turn one Imri or Chalice, turn two Narset, turn three Urza or Khan. It's just, yeah, they're very good against uh, this kind of deck. Uh, next up against Ant, which I won 2-0. Sword of Feast and Famine really shine there. Uh, next round was Goblins. I won 2-1, which I hate to say this to my Goblin friends because I just absolutely adore the deck, but I'm splashing black for just Plague Engineer. This is where we are at in Legacy right now. People splash Plague Engineer for primarily goblins and only secondarily elves. Even though elves yeah. have seen like a lot of results lately again. I, I think I think both decks are legit, very very good. So I just I was looking at the deck, thinking how can I beat these decks with them? Like Engine Explosives and Supreme Verdict. I've come to hate Wraths against these decks. They just grind through you like nothing. Yeah. It, it just doesn't matter. Like so, I didn't. I have two supreme verdicts in the seventy-five. I didn't even side the second in against goblins. It's just not. The yeah, way it's, to it's rather pointless, it. right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I kill some one ones and a two-two. You have twenty cards in hand, and you're about to play a Muxus. So yeah, pure respect for goblins and elves. I have plague engineers, so I beat goblins two-one off the back of them. Uh, then I play against burn, beat two-zero because Stoneforge Mystic and Battle Skull's great. Little anecdote: those Teferi Time Reveler was absolutely incredible against burn. It let me just counter their spells on their turn, and then develop as i wanted i didn't really expect that but it was cr- like completely oh, okay so so basically you're saying you you never have to fear something that's that goes like end of turn burn 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 and then untap and kill you or something so you exactly. know you, what your life total is gonna be yeah that's actually that's some valuable yeah. information i didn't i didn't realize it until going into it and then they had uh, like main parasitic pillars so he was a way to bounce them play some spells carry on with the game so yeah super clutch there uh then the final round was against rug delver which i won two zero uh, I think the matchup is probably favoured. It's the kind of deck which looks like it kind of beats Delver. It's just all removal and some good threats and sharks they can't counter. But it was against a very good player. Sharks they can't counter. I love that. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I still haven't fully adapted to shark being a relevant creature type in Legacy now. Oh, we'll get used to it, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, beat Rug Delver 2-0. So that was a clean 6-1 in the Swiss. Pretty good. Uh, in the quarterfinals, I played against very old school straight blue-white miracles with Portent, Predict back to basics main deck and stuff wow. it was cool but but my deck is just it just felt like uh, i had four four blasts in the sideboard and in game one i drew three shark typhoons and like just made two twos and three threes that they couldn't deal with that plus the card advantage so uh it, that was a pretty easy matchup i think for me but uh, it was pretty cool to see that deck doing well it's a fun one and then who, finally who was actually I, playing that that was punishing waterfalls so good, okay. very good legacy player he plays lots of um, Cephalo Breakfast. So I was expecting that, actually. But then turn one important. Yeah, it was pretty surprising. And then finally, I played against the absolute end boss, JTL Jeff Lin on Esper Vile. And he thoroughly, <laughs> absolutely crushed me to a, like, wasn't even close both games. So um, yeah, I would he, think he Esper Vile is a deck that's basically built to, to destroy any kind of control deck. It's so incredibly yeah. good against control. Absolutely, just like game one, I had a little bit of a chance because he messaged me after to talk about the match and he made a, one or two tiny mistakes, he thinks, which in the end let me have a small shot towards the end. But really, he was just in control the whole time. And then game two, I got completely crushed. He ended up, as I said, winning and he went 10 0, 7 0 the Swiss, wow. 3 0 into oh, the man. Topic. Oh, man. 
Just that explains why there's so many new messages. Like we, we have a group where we talk about the deck, but I haven't been too yeah. active in, in Espanol lately. But the, I love the deck. I really love the deck. I think I'm actually going to yeah. pick it up again. There was a second Espanol in the top four as well. Coke MTG. He was playing it. And he said he was on a 31 and 4 run with it, including the challenge, <laughs> which is pretty Dude. nuts. Yeah. He, he got like two five overs in a row and then like a 4 1 or something. So, yeah. So the deck is actually like printing money. It is. So could we actually like save the world economy under COVID? Like if everybody just played Esper, why we would make all so much money that we could just like recover the economy yeah. and, and everything's going to be fine. That's how it works, right? If everybody's winning, nobody's losing. But what if we put Shark Typhoon in Esper file? No, yeah. no, we're not going there. You can't blink it, it's okay. So yeah, that was my, uh, that was my uh, challenge run. So we've got some really interesting questions from people all over the internet, from Twitter, from Discord and stuff. Is there anything else you think I should cover before going um, to is, is this the list you would try, work with going forward? Because that, that's always like the, the question you get the most when you, when you tease a deck, when you advertise a deck. You already mentioned you're not sure about the standstills. But people yeah, want definite information. They, they want to know what are they going to register for the next event. What is, yeah. what is Callum recommending? Yeah. I think the the shell is solid. I wouldn't rec- I wouldn't recommend this exact seventy five. There's there's some problems with it. First of all, I think it should play a third astrolabe. The mana is tough. Oh um, wow! Okay. The the main deck is pure blue white, but after sideboarding, there's four blasts and there's black for plague engineer. I still like there's double there's double white spells, double blue spells. You want to snapcaster things at the right time. The mana does push it, so I would add a third astrolabe. Um, probably over the Supreme Verdict. I'm really low on that card. I just hate it in the format, honestly. <laughs> um, I'd also cut the Hall of Helion's Generosity. It's, I think it's very good when you have a standstill in the deck as well, because it gives you the flexibility of either rebuying a threat with Shark Typhoon or rebuying standstill to just pull you further ahead if you need it. With just Shark Typhoons, it was a bit underwhelming, so I think I would cut that, probably for a Krakus. Like, Uro is still in the format, and it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's pretty good. Otherwise... The um the leyline of the voids in the sideboard are like they stick out like a sore thumb, so I was recommended by a friend that they are amazing from decks that don't usually play leyline because uh, black red reanimator is very popular in legacy leagues and you just you have a very good shot of winning game one and you completely cheese them game two like they won't have yeah. an answer for it and then you have a very good shot game three because you you have the one up on them and you have the leyline still so. In practice, in the in the challenges, people just don't play Reanimator very much. They don't play Graveyard decks very much. There's a Hogek lingering out here or two, but I would I would just play like a Rest in Peace or two or a Surgical maybe or two, rather than the Ley Lines. I think in the leagues you want Ley Lines. In bigger events you want something else. That's another change. Otherwise, I really need to just play it more. Honestly, it's I liked a lot of the other numbers. Two Stone Forge felt good. Um, I'm considering moving the Balaskar to the sideboard. It's it's yes, fine. yes. You, you <laughs> see me going like like the Emperor and Star Wars. Where I'm like, yes, <laughs> remove the Balaskar, remove yeah. the Supreme Verdict. Like those are cards I think that are maybe not good enough for Legacy right now in general. Yeah, and yeah. So I mean, it them. seems weird to just have two Stoneforge Mystic and one Sword of Feast and Famine. But yeah, the the sword is very good when you throw it onto a Shark Token, like because they're flying, so they get through most things. Um, and then the, you get to untap like them. Yeah, exactly. Sharks, how do they hold a sword? I'm going to let the listener decide how that happens. But um, <laughs> yeah, so that that's my thing. I think, yeah, so the deck is not perfect at all by far, but the shell is strong. So 
definitely work on it. So we actually have an interesting listener question about this that I've also been wondering about. And that is the one that I actually have to find because somebody was asking, how, oh yeah, here it is, Jordan Woosley. How does he feel, well, that's that's being you, how does Callum feel about the stack versus more traditional forms of blue-white miracle control? Future of the archetype or a powerful option? Like what makes this better than miracles? Why would you want to play this over miracles? So I'd like to lump this in with the standstill variant as well because this uh, Stoneforge package over standstills was, it's still an experiment. Could be better, could be worse. My gut feeling says standstill is a bit better or in the numbers like two, like I said, I think this is better than traditional miracles. Like Terminus is Whoa. just not great in the format Shots right now. fired. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I love the old miracles, yes, but the thing is miracles is operating off the fact that Terminus is good. And it's just not great, honestly. I think, like we said it about Supreme Verdict, I think Wraths are just not very good. Um, Delve is able to present this Dreadhood Arcanist threat that you just have to answer and they cannot present more threats so you have to wrath it if that's your option like um, also elves, goblins, any other like uh, go wide decks essentially are still insane at grinding out wraths that, like, Terminus is obviously good against these decks but it's just not powerful enough in my opinion in the format to be worth building around well you want to be taking this like slightly more proactive approach. And Plague Engineer does a very good Wrath impression already. So, Yeah, Plague Engineer uh, gives me like so many more headaches than, than any Wrath ever could. Like yeah. Nerves especially right now. Um, a lot of people that are doing that thing where we have a lot of discard because that works so well versus Snow. Because what, what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is we've been trying to beat Snow by forcing a progenitors into play and having a lot of discard helps with that. And this is also the kind of deck where I would feel like bringing in a tons of discard would be amazing. Whereas with Plague Engineer, at least you get to tap out and put that into play so I can't discard it anymore. And then I'm putting into being put into this really weird spot where I kind of want to bring in a Prop Decay against you. But uh, it just feel like, it feels like whenever your second best option is to a Prop Decay Snapcaster Mage, it just feels so bad. Yeah, I guess there's other targets, but none of them feel, really feel great. No, completely. So um, yeah, I would play a third Plague Engineer, actually. I realized that I got to put my hands up and say this deck is really not put together like uh, perfectly. So I wasn't going to play the challenge until five minutes before it. And I was like, ah, actually, I've got the day. I feel like it threw it together. And I had an old list I uploaded to Mana Traders. So I wanted three Plague Engineers. I rented two by mistake. And I had like <laughs> 30 seconds to find the last card on the sideboard. And I have very few cards on my account because I rent everything. But I have some cards that I always like the nice arts of, like Brainstorm, Ponder, and Snowlands. And I have lightning bolts as well, so I just threw a lightning bolt on the sideboard. So that should be a third plague engineer. Should be one. Oh, that one. Um, okay, okay. Yeah. I was wondering, and then the supreme verdict, maybe, maybe an engineer explosive to have more outs to chitter or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Supreme uh, engineer explosives or like uh, maybe a, a disenchant. I think the deck struggles with chalice. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I would like one of those. You also get to snapcast all that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, exactly. That's actually one of the um the the late Philip Schöniger. Well, actually, do you say late if he's still alive? Well, late in his magic career. Uh, yeah. Philip explained to me that his philosophy when building miracles back then, when miracles was dominating everything, was like you really wanna have impactful cards that you can snapcaster back. So if you can like if you have a rare tear on the sideboard or something and you can snapcaster back, that's just so much more valuable than having engineered explosives, for example, because you get yeah. double use out of it. And it's that's so true. something yeah. yeah that something to always keep in mind with snapcaster mage decks. This is where the Leyland of the Voids really stick out even further. Like it's a three snapcaster mage deck. You really would assume you have surgicals, but um yeah, so they're an yeah. experiment. 
That's actually something, so, when I played Natural Order Bands and the other, uh, in a couple of leagues lately, and I did really well with it, people really didn't expect the Leyline game to. And uh, <laughs> I played against yeah. a guy, he really just started like playing Nakramoba on turn two, Gogari Thug, and then he had the <laughs> trump card, like the Stinkvidim, because that basically is better than anything. But I yeah. ended up drawing so many salts to plowshares and path to excess, and I literally won the game by just attacking with Dryad Arbor. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I think people should experiment with playing ley lines more as well. In even in decks you can't cast it, because the graveyard decks are so strong, and they don't expect it from decks that can't cast it. So you'll get a lot of free wins like that, which is nice. Awesome. A couple but more to, questions. Or did, yeah, uh, go ahead. Just to finish off the thing. So I, th I think yeah, this is better than uh, miracles as we kind of think of it as terminus control. But I, I wouldn't be sure if it's better than like. Uh, Yorion Snow or, or just normal Snow it's not to be said like I don't think that deck is particularly great but it's this uh, Shark Typhoon control decks like Shark Control as you said it's got a bit more proving to do but uh, I think it's been putting up some results and uh, I'm excited to see where it goes yeah, I mean, you've so. been putting out a lot of results with it. I, I saw Anorak play it a while, um, a while ago, and I think um, Noah Walker wrote an article about it on Channel Fireball. Yeah, I, I'm seeing people on Discords and Twitter and stuff saying that they are winning a lot with it as well. Is there a Shark Control Discord? No, but uh, like there's Miracles and there's a Stoneblade Discord, so I've been seeing people in both talking about them. Dude, you, you've only been adding those Stormforge Mystics so you can like enter the Stoneblade Discord and be like part of that. Well, you, you basically just wanted to appeal to them to have more company. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, gotcha. I, think, I think I'm in almost every single Discord just because it's like... Literally you know, every before. single Discord. Well, whenever I see a new one, I just join it. And then it's like a it's like being on a big forum. I go to them. So How I many Discords the, are you actually in? Like I'm in, I'm, I'm in like 15 maybe maximum. I think, I think like 20 or so. Oh, okay. I think there might be a little more than 20. There's, I'm sure there's lots I'm not in as well. But I like to, whenever like I see a deck doing well and I'm interested in it, I can go to the Discord and see if people are talking about it. It's, yeah. And it's then good. you mute it and never return like I do. Oh, everything's muted. Yeah. Apart from um, <laughs> everything ever has muted. Awesome. Cool. So I wanted to um, shoot you another question that we received from Rappelcheap on Twitter. Rappelcheap, actually, uh, the one who put curses on the map, actually submitted a couple of donation deck lists on my channel. Yeah. So if you want to check that out, check it out on itstudian.com. We have a couple of curse leaks. <laughs> they, they also top eight of the challenge on Saturday. Yeah. Which is, yeah, shout out for that. Very good. I, I hope they're going to fix that one enchantment that actually doesn't work. The, the, there's one that's bugged that's supposed to make your opponent sacrifice a creature or planeswalker, and if they can't, they lose five life. Actually, if they don't do it, nothing happens. Yeah, it's such a shame. We we should also link the uh, the bug report in the in the show notes because... They've been trying to get Magic Online to fix that for ages, and so any upvotes there will help. Oh, yeah, definitely. So cool. what he was asking is, what's your game plan that allows you to consistently beat Okodex game one? How do you do it? Man, tell us. It is a good question. Is it Sharks that way? Sharks is part of the puzzle. <laughs> so um, the, the sideboard is playing Redland, Middle Blast, and Pyroblast mostly for Oko. Like, the card is obviously incredibly strong against Blue-White, but... The, the only really scary Okos are the ones that come down early, like the ones when Delver goes turn two Arcanist, turn three Oko, and they have days and potentially forces and stuff. Those are the really scary, scary ones that snowball. The ones that come down on turn six plus or whatever, you can, once you have your mana going, your the blue-white engines going, as I like to call it, you have your source of plowshares. Like, the loyalty is high, but you can eventually ignore it or just you just gain control of the game by so much that you can attack it over four turns or something. 
And essentially, it's just making a 3-3 every other turn, which is a lot less scary when you think of it like that. Like, the name Oko is, like, oh my god, it's it's terrifying. <laughs> it is an insanely strong card, but like I said, when it comes down early, you're under pressure from other things. Later, you can you can swords these every other turn 3-3s, three and you have these sharks attacking it. And like, in this in this build specifically, I had uh, Balaskull or something with a sword of Feast and Famine to attack through the Elks, which is very important. Like, I did kill a uh, Oko by being able to attack through Elks and um, Hooting Mandrels in the challenge. So you do just overwhelm it eventually if you have control over the game. And from Snow, it's it's scary. They have Astrolabes to make 3-3s, three so it's kind of like, can be 3-3 three three every turn. But against that matchup, playing the Shark Typhoons as a enchantment is very legit because they have very little ways to answer apart from Force at Will. Oh, dude, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so you do just get to, like... They're a really slow deck as well. You get to this late game, and then you you force something. You have a 5-5 five, five shark. That's going to kill an Oko. So <laughs> I think it looks a lot worse on paper than it is in game one. And then, yeah, I, it, it really does come down to a 3-3 three, three every other, other turn mostly, and you just swords and snapcaster swords them and Teferi bounce the food when they're tapped out and stuff like that. And you, you overpower it eventually. So, yeah, it's not as bad as people think, I think. But you actually, you, you, you got to, like... Put it differently. Teferi is not bouncing the food. Teferi is literally eating their food because it disappears. Yeah. Teferi's hungry and he wants your tempo back. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that comes up, up a card. lot. Like when when they when someone slams Oko turn three, make a food. You slam Teferi, bounce their food token. You've drawn a card off exchange. They then next turn make another food. You get to untap with Teferi and like probably swords their thing next turn and start to pull ahead. And you yeah, now have yeah. complete control of the stack. So. As long as you have the tools, which like the blue-white decks with swords and snapcast and mage do, I think Teferi, in a way, trumps the Oko, Teferi versus Oko thing. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've gotten to appreciate the card a lot more. Like, I've always been a little bit down on it because of, like, how it felt weak for three mana and stuff. But yeah. after playing with it in Natural Order Band especially, and also previously in Band Food Chain, ah, it just feels so good when you bond something and you draw a card. I, I can't uh, help it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I've I've been absolutely so happy with the two copies I've been playing in all these kind of uh, shark decks. You don't want more. You can get like clogged on them, and you really want to draw one early game and then one later. So two feels like the perfect number. But it is just it's been fantastic. It's so good against Delver. It just buys tempo, gets your card back, and then having control over the stack lets you do whatever you want. And it's especially good if you have like a sort of feast and famine in the deck, so your creature doesn't die when you equip it and stuff. It's yeah, I really strongly advocate for two copies of Teferi in these kind of decks. So one more questions we, a question we received from Marcus Ewald, the grandfather of Blue. Why <laughs> do you hate drawing cards, Caleb? Uh, getting at how, why did you can't uh, remove the standstill? Is that, is that something we already talked about or is there something else you wanted to say? This about is that? actually something that we really talked about. So I put in the show notes that this is something ah, okay. to say. But it, it goes back to the point about um, every card generating card advantage without spending mana on just drawing raw cards much to marcus's uh he's very upset with me there's no cumulative knowledge <laughs> there's no standstill there's no predict this is this is not a blue deck to marcus i'm so. still waiting for the day where marcus <laughs> replaces all of his islands with like you know all of the, the cycle lands that you can get there's actually like two kind like the ones that cycle <laughs> for blue and the ones that cycle for two white uh, two colorless and stuff yeah yeah honestly One you should day. follow through with that marcus come but, on please but those aren't islands they don't tap for two or more mana with high tide so okay okay I'm still holding out for Urborg for blue for islands. That, that that's just okay. what I want. Choke then and Urborg for islands. Oh, he would. Yeah, choke. <laughs> I mean, what, that's no? called standstill, right? That's called stasis, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, really excited for the deck. We're gonna link it in the show notes. Definitely check it out. It's more than a meme. It started out as a meme. It was actually commissioned as a meme, and then the meme became sentient, and yeah, now it's crushing. <laughs> it's alive. <laughs> for, for just a small like further point to Shark Typhoon, I really think this card is. It can go in so many more decks. It's not just a standstill deck, or it's not just blue white. So I have another deck idea I want to build soon, which is like land standstill. It's, I know that's a very old deck and stuff, but using exploration and a whole of Helios generosity and Uro to then like make Shartofen a very legit hardcast thing, and you, you it ramps as well. You get loads of mana to cycle and make a twenty twenty shark. Why do you need Marilage when you have a shark token? So that's my next project. You there, Julian? I muted myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was, what was uh, going on? Okay. Here we go. I just I just gave you this huge, awesome introduction for our, for our next segment <laughs> on the show, which is deck building, philosophy, and principles, which is something you actually did a lot of work on and preparation. And now you have to put up with what I just came up with. So ah. <laughs> without further ado... Tell us something about the principles, philosophies, and guidelines of deck building, not only in legacy, but in general. Yeah, so deck building is a really deep subject. We could like spend many, many uh, podcasts on, and maybe this like is a way to go into future things. But there's a lot of uh, misconceptions in it, and a lot of it's pretty daunting as well. So I think I thought it was a really good idea if we just go through a lot of the fundamentals on how to start building a deck, what you should be looking out for common pitfalls and stuff like that so yeah building a deck fundamentals first of all i'd like to say why are you building a deck uh, the main two reasons you're going to build a deck are to win or for fun like it really does boil down to these two pillars very often and you should be honest with yourself here if you're building a deck because you think it's cool and whatever that's completely fine and these decks very often end up being good a lot of decks that i've built are just because i think it's cool like it's uh, there's a majority of my decks so don't feel bad about admitting that you're building a deck for fun because you can still work just as hard and it becomes good. Or you're building a deck to win and that's your only aim. It doesn't happen as much in Legacy because it's not like a, a Pro Tour supported format or whatever, but people are still trying their best to win on online tournaments and stuff. So there's separate categories for these to win or for fun things. So to win, you're usually going to have, like the format's been around for so long that you're going to, most archetypes or strong uh, interactions with cards and combos and stuff have been discovered. Like there are some that take a while to be discovered. Like uh, Dark Depths was a fringe deck for a very long time, and um, what's another one? Necrot really made us well. Exactly. The cards were around for for like years before people put it together. Absolutely, and so it was just commonly accepted that blue black reanimates with forcible and days was the best thing, but actually just being faster and different interaction with like Chancellor. Yeah, it was around for a long time. So there are probably still decks out there that aren't quite discovered. But um, generally, when you're building a deck to win, it's going to come from new cards. So some pretty obvious recent examples of this are Underworld Breach and Lurus of the Dream Den. Like These cards came along and people built with them very quickly. And these decks just completely dominated and they got banned very quickly. So I'm sure everyone listening remembers these uh, brief metagames with them. But that's what I mean when a new card comes out, you should be looking for interactions between it. Like Breach was obviously Lion's Eye Diamond and Brain Freeze. Lurus is cheap creatures and spells and Mishra's Bauble was the, the tipping point for it. 
So the other one is a meta predator. So this generally comes about in meta games where you have one strongly defined best deck. So again, using the same examples of Breach and Luris, because they're very recent. Uh, when Luris Del Delver was very popular, I built a, a bigger Delver deck essentially. So I cut the Delvers and played Young Pyromancer and uh, like Of One Mind it was in the deck and stuff. But it was basically a bigger Luris deck that had more removal to beat up on the on the Delver variants. And it did. It, be it beat Delver very consistently. So that's a perfect example of seeing that Legacy is a state where there is such a clear best deck, it's very easy to target it. Uh, you often are going to be a bigger deck of what that best deck is. So in the example of Breach, we saw Breach start off by playing Enlightened Tutor, and it was just a very fast, more all-in combo. But as it became very clearly the best thing to be doing, we saw the decks start to slow down and play Predict so that they had more game in the mirrors. So we saw Predict and like more Silences and then Mentor Cyborg as like quote-unquote the meta predator because Breach was just so good that you... You had to play it really if you wanted to win. Uh, that's again just going bigger. So I think there's there's not many other examples of building a deck to win in these in this category. But those two are going to sum up most of it. Yeah, that's actually interesting because you mentioned that that people then went on and went bigger as a as a meta predator, and I think that's a very common thing that happens in legacy because the first deck you build is going to be incredibly efficient, super optimized to use its mana very well early on, and as people then see that doing well, they're they're sometimes like trying to cut some aggressive elements, adding more mid range or card draw or even control elements, and so the decks become a bit more sluggish, slower. But it's really just about going like over the top of your opponent but not too far over the top so i always just like to imagine the decks as let's say the fastest deck in the format is what i would call a one and then there's like a two or three or four the four is like the super slow control deck and you always mm -hmm. say like the one uh, the two is favored against the one the three is favored against the two and the four is favored against the three because it's like over the top but not too much over the top whereas the one and the two are definitely favored against the four if, if that makes sense and yeah. that's also like part of what makes mid-range so attractive because with mid-range decks i would say you play the highest number of games where nobody's like super advantaged whereas like for example playing the one against the four you're very advantaged just like yeah that, that that's basically a principle at, at work there and i think one of the hardest and most rewarding things is realizing that you're supposed to go under those decks again. Like when everybody's playing like a three and a four deck, going back to the number one deck, which I guess happened at some point when people were playing like blue red diver, like those those blitz diver kind of decks before Dreadhought Arcanist was a thing, where people were really like, no, I'm really just going to kill you on the fourth turn and I might not have a ton of cards in hand anymore, but it won't matter. And that's something I really appreciate when somebody notices that and builds their deck accordingly. Yeah, I re this this one two three four. That's a really good way of putting it. I never thought of it like that. I've always thought of it as like a tightrope when you're building this uh, top deck meta predator thing. So you want to be you're you're balancing yourself between one side is you want to be bigger and you want to consistently beat the best deck which is like established, but you also don't want to like tip over too much the other side where you become too slow and mid rangey and you're not taking advantage of why the deck is good in the first place. So Luris is good because it was lower to the ground and like. Uh, that was it basically so you don't want to go too far into like just removal because then you're going to lose why Lyris is good in the beginning same with the breach so actually I forgot to mention a third way to be thinking about building a deck to win is mid-range and control decks evolve over time and like the most recent example is we've had Oko, Uro and Icefang Quattle and Astrolabe among other friends or enemies depending how you look at it there's a lot of love and hate <laughs> for these cards um, 
but when new cards that are obviously good in these kind of archetypes come out, you want to reassess how you build mid-range and control. And so mid-range and control before these cards came out was pretty much like miracles and straight blue-white based. But uh, Tropical Island has got such a huge boost recently that uh, these like um, mid-range and control decks have been turned on their head and now we have something very different. We have mid-range decks mostly. So... Yeah, but we don't have the good kind of mid-range. We don't have Death in Texas. We don't have uh, Maverick. Everybody's playing like four-color Maverick with Mox Diamonds. But yeah, that's just (laughs) me going on on a tangent here. Well, we'll have Oko and Texas soon. Oko and Texas. How has that never been tried? (laughs) I guess because it's two off-colors and it doesn't really work with Thalia. But Oko and Texas, that's the next step. We'll we'll just say it's it's a deck we're building for fun, so we don't have to put up with any kind of restriction. And then maybe fun is going to turn into something powerful. Uh, XJ Cloud, exactly. He loves Oko. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so moving on to the for fun section because Oko is so fun um, as we said you, you should be building decks of fun and legacy that is a huge like, part of the format for people especially myself this is why I build most decks so again you're looking for new or undiscovered interactions some examples of things that I've made or seen that I loved is Arclight Phoenix that came out and I was like wow this is so cool with Buried Alive and Dark Ritual so I spent months and months building Arclight Phoenix deck Echo of Eons is a great combo with Lion's Eye Diamond that's been incorporated in Tez and other Storm decks in the Urza Echoes deck. Uh, now, as we were talking about before, Standstill and Shark Typhoon. Again, new interactions like Standstill always relied on the creature lands. Now you have a way to just not have to play them. Um, and also, as we said, very often these decks do lead to be very good in Tier 1. So Dark Depths was not respected as a deck at all until it, I believe it won an Eternal Weekend in America three, you had, four um... years ago. Yeah, I think it was 2016 or 17. I think it was actually the finals yeah. in Europe was uh, Black Red Reanimator versus uh, some kind of Dark Depth. I'm pretty sure because back then I was I said, Dark Depth is going to be here to stay and Black Red Reanimator, that's just like a fluke. That's going to go away. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, at least I was 50% the, right. <laughs> the deck back then had, it was like cyborg sneak attacks and playing four chrome mocks for Simeon Spirit Guides. It was very different then. Oh, and Stronghold so, Gambit, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, Dark Depth is my favorite example of a fringe that became tier one and it was it did used to be just as like oh wow it's a timmy thing you're making in 2020 isn't that cute but i mean it's <laughs> it's a, obviously a super real deck now so um it does make you wonder like how many more decks there are out there because i mean a really good example is ninjas this is a deck people like you say the name you're like wow that's a cool deck it's so fun and whatever oh you played a term on ornithopter isn't that cute but so it won the Saturday challenge this weekend. It put another in the top eight, and there was another copy in yesterday's challenge. The deck is good. It's really good. It's a it's a tempo deck with a lot of card advantage. So I could see this as another example of a, a, f- a quote unquote fun deck, which actually ends up being pretty good. Yeah, the deck is much better than it looks, right? I mean, it yeah. sometimes has these weird draws where it it, it is bad. But yeah. I, I've lost to it from points where I was like, yeah, I'm not I'm not losing to this shit. But I mean, turns yeah. out the shit was better than what I brought to the table. Yeah. So, yeah. Something I find interesting as well is to to look at things that are going on in the metagame uh, with regards to strategy and especially card types. For example, I always felt like when, Mir- when Top Miracles was the top dog, right? I never really liked relying on stuff like Choke or sometimes people even brought like City of Solitude or whatever because that makes them unable to activate top, which is like, yeah, okay. But the thing is, Miracles didn't have that hard of a time removing enchantments. And the the nature of enchantments usually is 
except for Shark Typhoon, is once they are dealt with, their effect wears off and there's no lasting effect. So I never really liked it that way. So I always felt like if I want to beat Miracles, like top Miracles, it's gotta come from some kind of land interaction because Miracles for the longest of times couldn't really interact with lands until they started playing um, not only Blood Moon, but the, the what's the one that destroys all from the basic lands? Yeah, exactly. And they didn't really do that for a very long time. And that's something that Dark Depths, I remember, like, really really exploited because mm -hmm. miracles only had like four sorts of plowshares to to interact and that didn't always like be enough and yeah setting up the, the terminus was kind of hard and everything and yeah that that's something that i really like to see if, if you think a deck can't really hand a certain kind of permanent then you either find a dedicated deck that really abuses that permanent which is usually kind of hard because i mean that, that leads to stuff like enchantress which i guess also like has its place and does spoil at times yeah. Uh, and the other one is where you mindfully construct your sideboard in a way that you abuse this kind of permanent. For example, against the the Oko decks, they actually kind of struggled for a while. Depending on which cards, which kinds of colors they splash, they struggle with enchantments, for example, because Oko can't touch that, and then they have abrupt decay. But abrupt decay can't hit like more expensive enchantments. I guess that takes us back to to what you said about uh, Shark Typhoon earlier on, actually. So that's kind of mm -hmm. cool. So always like having that kind of stuff on mind. Like, what is what are the top dogs in the format? What are, which kind of trouble do they have? What, what do they not want to face as a good card? And that might lead you to playing a card that in a vacuum might not be the best, most powerful card, but compared to what the decks you want to beat bring to the table, this is what you want to be doing. And that's why, looking back, I it's just like I find it so genius that that somebody put together Dark Depth and yeah took took the meta game. There, there's a lot of like um kind of fundamental things you can go back to like. There's quite a lot of times where Grixis is the best deck in some, like the colors in some form. It's generally Delvo, or it's like Lurus and stuff. And enchantments are insane against Grixis. So like you were saying, uh, and Oko, if it's in the band colors, enchantments are very good against it. Um, so yeah, this is maybe this is a way to exploit the current metagame. If, well, I guess Rug Delver is the de facto like deck, but it's still like the Oko decks really rely on Oko to deal with the annoying non-creature permanents and stuff. So yeah. Do you know, some, sometimes it's, it's it's stuff like play hexproof creatures, play uncounterable creatures. Uh, something we do in elves uh, right now. That I think uh, Newton started doing that t totally independently of, of me, and I also did that. Like that, that's it's kind of cool when you see two people come to the same conclusion. For example, against what I mentioned earlier, the snow decks that we want discard, and then we want to discard natural order into uh, progenitors because the snow decks they can't really do anything about natural order. Like, yeah, I guess yeah. you could have 10 snow permanents, but that's not really happening for your Dread of Winter. No. And it's not very common that people actually play Bond Miracles, so they would have Terminus. So yeah, I, I really, really like that kind of approach. And that's also like goes back to, they have a certain kind of wrath, and that wrath can't interact with Progenitus. And that's where we are. Yeah, it is picking apart the best decks. You think, if you again, if you if you're... Ground zero, you're building a deck, you have an idea, you think of a cool interaction or a cool way to build a control deck or a mid-range deck, you think, how am I going to like face these top decks? So you usually have a Delver deck, you can have a control deck of some sort, like Snow kind of thing for now. And you think, how am I? How are these games going to play out? Like, What's the general way I'm going to lose? What's the general way I'm going to win? So exactly as you've said with Elves, you think you found the hole in their plan. Like They can't beat your progenitors once it's resolved. So your now plan is going to be completely to have that resolve but if you hadn't pinpointed that like you're just not bringing in discard so it's a it's a whole game plan rather than just a card here or there 
this is this is where we'll get to sideboarding uh, shortly. But sideboarding really encompasses how you build your whole deck based on how the like the meta game and how you think you play against these decks. Not just oh a few cards for this, a few cards for that. You really need to have full plans exactly as you have. Yeah. Definitely. Um, do you want to go into sideboarding or do you want to say a little bit more on, on general deck building um, considerations? I see some more stuff in the show notes right now. Let, let's go into the questions to ask yourself while building. I think these are good. Oh yeah, that's good. Yeah. So th there's a couple of questions you will ask yourself while building a deck or that you should ask yourself while building a deck, especially if you want to build the deck to win, right? I think it, if, it, if you're building yeah. the deck for fun, you, those questions are more secondary and they come you in should, as you, you refine still the deck. Them, but you can, you can ask these questions to yourself after you've built the deck to, to tune it, I guess. <laughs> That's what I mean by secondary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the first one is, there's just this, the Delver test in Legacy. Like, can you put up a fight versus Delver? This is the deck that's going to keep you honest and fair if possible. Like, it's going to, like, everyone knows Delver by now. So if you have a deck that's like, a very uh it's an a and b combo deck that uses a three mana card then a four mana card especially if they're blue that is just not going to be delver like tricks i know this is a really old combo that no one plays anymore <laughs> but just as a really really simple example it's a four mana enchantment and then a three mana thing after that like that kind of thing is just rarely going to work against delver you can try and help with some like fast mana soul lands and stuff but reality is you're going to struggle you need to have like lock pieces as well to use off this fast mana so uh, yeah, you just need to say, like, how am I building a turn one Delver with Wasteland and Days? The second one is the most boring question, in my opinion. It is, are you playing a worse version of something else? So a really good example is lots of Entomb decks. Like, you get them and you think, God, Entomb is sweet. I can go and get a Blood Ghast. I can go and get a Creeping Chill to Lightning <laughs> Helix my opponent. I can go and get a Cabal Therapy. But then you start thinking, okay, if I'm getting anything into my graveyard, I can get a creature. So then I can like reanimate or unearth this creature. And then you get to the question, like, why are you not just entombing and reanimating Grizzlebrand? So that's a that's a, another question. Like, so it doesn't have to be as straightforward as that. But if you're building, I don't know, another example I think is Rip Helm. People have a big love for this combo. It's a cool combo. But I see people play it in blue-white decks a lot. And like, are you playing these cards because you like to, or is it really better than a blue-white deck with just normal threats and stuff. Yeah, I, I guess that's a, that's actually one of the hardest things for people to internalize because, like you mentioned, for example, Ripham, it looks good, it's like cute, it has like some splash damage, and you can quickly get caught up in, oh, this is, this is cool, this is what I want to be doing. And yeah. I wonder whether that's something you might have asked yourself as well when you were building that the shark deck because but but you already mentioned yeah. that you were primarily building it for fun so the question was secondary so we, totally. we gotta dodge that <laughs> well no no it makes sense though because um this is this is a really hard question to answer sometimes because you may straight up believe that what you're doing is better than something else and whether it is or isn't then it's just going to be come down to you have to play it so i mean there are probably meta games where rip helm is good but i think it's pretty rare just as use as this as an example so i think if you're pretty confident in something or not sure especially if you're not sure you should then just start playing it when you can like anyone that has magic online just start jumping into the queues playing it if you start winning you're onto something if you start losing a lot you should question that further um yeah like the shot something... thing it started as a bit of a meme as we said it seemed like kind of cool but it was actually a commission like... meme from niklas hartmann right <laughs> exactly yeah yeah he shouted at me to build a deck with the with the card, <laughs> and then there we go. 
Yeah. Something that I um, always ask people when, when they come to me, they're like, hey, Julian, there's this and this deck. Uh, I want to play this and this card in that deck. Wouldn't that be good? And the question of would, wouldn't that be good is just like so deep and people sometimes don't realize that immediately because, yes, it's good against decks, I don't know, A, B, and C, but is that worth giving up percentages up against deck like, I don't know, D, E, F or something, X, Y, Z? And... People usually often approach something like, oh, this is going to improve my matchup here. And then the question is, but is that worth it? And I think that also on a meta level works for decks. Like you you play your deck and is it really worth Like obviously your deck, your, your different version of an established deck is going to be better against a certain number of decks. But you're also losing percentages against other decks. And that's really the big question you got to ask for yourself, ask yourself and, and answer for yourself if you're building the deck to win. Is that worth it? And I feel a lot of times it's not worth it. It's more like people get caught up in, oh, this is great. This is going to be, I don't know, good against a couple of decks. But it's actually, it's not, it's really bad against Delva. And I don't know about my snow matchup. And at this point, I'm like, okay, it's just, I, 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 I'm not yeah. sure if this is where you want to be going forward, even though you beat your friends, I don't know, Treefolk deck or something, or, or you're good against the new Merfolk deck yourself deck with Orc. But yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's, it's one of the hardest things to ask yourself. It really is. I mean, there's no there's no lying here. Building a deck is very hard. Uh, legacy decks are no exception, of course, maybe even harder than other things because you have to put up with so much powerful stuff from the other side of the table. So... Yeah, you may like lose horribly against Reanimator enough that you're like, I have to beat this deck. I have to put these things in. But you do need to be conscious of if you're putting so many things to beat one or two different matchups or one spread of decks, like if you make yourself so much worse versus everything else, are you really playing the right deck? Is this the way you should be approaching the format? Um, it, like you said, it's so deep. We could do a whole podcast on this one topic, really. But, but you know, um, then, then people are like, oh, but you don't understand. Everybody else is doing it wrong. They are playing the decks that are good against me. And I mean, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, not play that deck then. But they are doing it wrong. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, if I doing mean, it wrong is winning, then you're probably doing it wrong. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's, yeah. So that's a very hard question to ask yourself. But you should be, you should try and be as absolutely honest with yourself as possible. Because... Yeah, you can like tell people that you're winning, but at the end of the day, you know how your game is going because you're playing them. And you should be happy with how you're winning or losing. I mean, it can't hurt to really just like show around the list and people might not have the same kind of experience you had because we already played it a little bit. But even just getting some external inputs on where people... Like, if you ask people for advice on a deck, they will usually tell you all the bad things. They will not tell you, oh, this is good. This looks like it's going to work because that's something you already noticed. Like, when somebody sends me a deck, I usually initially look for flaws that i can see because that's the most helpful thing so I don't do be like discouraged yeah. yeah right so don't be discouraged yeah. if, if your friends um just give you some bad well, points it, about the deck it's a natural thing but, they're looking they're looking to improve it they're not looking to like pat you on the back they're looking to say look okay well i think this can be better in this way and etc so it's a it's a good thing when people point out flaws in your deck i think it's like, oh, yeah, I like how you want to cast your Nicole Bolas Planeswalker. I think this is going to be very good against Burn. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Cool. So, yeah, as we said, very tough question there to ask yourself, but you should be honest about it. The next one, I think, is, well, it's another hard question. It's, is your deck's power level in line with the format? This means anyone that plays enough Legacy should be aware that you can die on turn one. The aggro decks probably kill you 
average of turn four and they have disruptions. So we're talking like Delver, maybe turn five, Eldrazi aggro. You have these like mixes, like elves can kill you turn two technically, or they can grind you out. Like you should be aware of the, the power level of the format is pretty high. So when you're building a deck, you can't have a deck that has a combo that like goldfish is on turn four with no disruption. That's not going to work as cool as it is. So you need to be thinking about how, again, it actually ties into other questions, but how are you going to win against the other decks in the format? Yeah, I would say there's a specific, there's a specific framework, framework of cards and legacy that you, I really look at it like, like a, a cube almost with different decks defining how far you can go in certain directions. Like Delva is going to tell you, okay, if you want to cast something for four mana, it better win the game. And there's like certain combo decks that tell you, okay, you you definitely got to have this amount of disruption or a very quick kill. So that, that that's like a spectrum. You either have like a lot of disruption or you have a very quick kill. That's rather hard to disrupt. And, and you got to find your spot there. And that's basically the thing that's happening. If you want to go really late game, there, there's going to be, I hate to mention it, there's going to be stuff like Nick Fitz, I guess. <laughs> that's going to be, okay, your, your late game has got to be better than mine unless you, you yeah. have a combo going. That's actually like something that people in deck building usually like to do. Instead of trying to booster, booster whatever, improve their late game, they sometimes try to include some kind of combo. So we actually don't have to go to late game. Actually, a good example of that would be the World Gotcha Dragon. Um, we just had Kylo on, on the last episode where he talked about he's playing Snow with the World Gotcha Dragon deck. And the kind of cool thing about that kind of deck building is you get those, those situations where you just close out the game rather quickly once you've established control, but you also get the situations where you win on turn two. And that's something of all that always appeals to me. That's just mm-hmm. like my thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's that is the power level of the format. Like you're dealing with decks that can kill you on the second turn with Thought Season, Force of Will, and they can beat you on turn ten plus with their mid range threats. Like that's what you're dealing with. So yeah, you have to be ready for the format. You can't just go around with uh, like really really <laughs> slow decks and expect to win. It's just not how it works. Next one is consistency. Uh, consistency is the name of the game in Legacy for a lot of decks, especially blue, because they have brainstorm, ponder, cantrips. Like there's so much velocity in this format. Like the decks are just tuned to do what they do almost every single game. Like you're not going to play against dark depths and they're just not going to find their combo. That's not how it works. You're not going to play against storm and they're not going to find their tendrils of agony. Against the the blue decks, they're not going to find their force if they don't want, if they want it. So you need to be able to. If you want to build a combo deck, especially, like you can build combo decks that kill on turn one, but how often do they kill turn one? Like you might have Cheerios and say, like, wow, it kills turn one like 10% of the time. It's just <laughs> not, it's just not going to cut it as cool as it is. I mean, I love that deck as well, but um, yeah, you need to be realistic with how, how uh, consistent your deck is. If you're building a fair deck, which generally is like not blue, you need to be think, okay, I'm building a black red mid range deck. I have removal, I have discard, I have some threats. I don't think the core is just going to do well in Legacy because you're going to draw the removal against control, you're going to draw the discard against an Uro deck or something as well, you're going to draw the lightning bolts against combo, it's just you can draw too many threats. You need to have some engines in place, so be, be aware of this pitfall. Engines are a really good point because you mentioned about how you're going to have like discard or like removal spells. Like, why don't we really see a deck in Legacy that's really just like chant? You know, we have discard, we have removal spells, we have big creatures. Because that's that deck 
at its core is really just doing one for ones, one for ones, one for ones. And the thing about Legacy is there are so many decks that are really gonna punish you if your game plan is just gonna be like one for ones, one for ones, one for ones all the time. Like Elves is the prime example. It's gonna punish you so hard if you keep doing that. Like I, I keep saying, when people keep a hand of like I don't know four lightning bolts and they think, oh, that's amazing versus Elves. Like no, this is just like so bad. No. <laughs> If Absolutely. you want to do that one for yeah, if you want to do that one for one thing, you have to have some kind of engine, anything that that you are bu- building towards, like you you're creating this short bubble where you can actually establish some kind of engine. Whether I guess in the past it used to be something like Survivor of the Fittest, I guess, but mm-hmm. which was like much easier to establish. But or usually these days it's a planeswalker or goblin welder, you know, something that that makes it so that your one for ones that you did to get some breathing room i want to say that they can become active and if they are active long enough then you're gonna be just too far ahead for them to to catch up and you gotta be aware of that if you if you i can only stress that again if you put so many one-for-ones in your deck you gotta have something like that and that's usually why strategies like chant kind of fail because yeah i guess they got him but that's that's really just it i mean i mean if like just on the black red mid-range deck example you could have like faithless looting and bedlam reveler as an engine because you're powering through instances of sorceries, you're using Faithless Looting for velocity and selection, and then you have a further way to re- recoup the uh, card disadvantage. Like, this is not a great engine, but it's just an example of how to try and fix something that has the mid-range problem. Yeah, uh, so that's a pretty quick, concise one. Lastly, I think it's really important when you're building a deck, when it's this kind of ties into slightly more when you're playing to win as well is how easy is it to hate out your deck and how much splash damage does it get from the current tier one decks so yeah it's a bit of both if you're building a deck you think i really want to build like okay let's take uh arc like phoenix as an example if i was building that deck at the absolute height of black red reanimator i was gonna have a horrible time gonna run into like loads of ley lines surgical extractions everywhere you should be looking at what the best deck is or the best decks and think does my deck I'm building have huge amounts of splash damage? Am I going to have a horrible time with people just like trying to beat other decks and happens to me? Currently in Legacy, we have like Delver and mid-range decks doing pretty well and some combo. So there's nothing that actually sticks out to being specifically good against a new deck. So it's okay right now, but at the height of Breach, people are playing Graveyard Hate. You don't want to play a Graveyard deck then. So it's just something to keep an eye out when you're having some new ideas. Yeah, what, what are actually mind. the most consistent themes that that come up at times? You mentioned the graveyard, that sometimes when graveyard decks are too strong, you you got to reassess whether that's where you want to be. I guess if, if, for example, like Blue White Top Miracles or any kind of like Miracles is super popular, then a more creature-focused approach, like straight up Green White Maverick is kind of problematic. Yeah, I think I think the main ones are going to be graveyard decks and creature decks that don't have like strong draw engines like elves so if if delver is the best deck you probably want to stay away from like just loads of threats that die to lightning bolts or source of plowshares uh if graveyard be covered um yeah a good example i guess is maverick although that's not too bad but yeah those those would be the main ones i think so with all of this established what's the best deck in the format best deck in the format i don't know like people are saying rug delver I just don't feel like it is. <laughs> it's putting up all the results. It's obviously very good. I, I, I'm struggling to say one. Like, it might actually be. It might secretly be elves. Like, given how, like, yeah. there's not too many people around who are playing elves, but it's consistently putting like three to four copies in the top thirty-two of most is, challenges. And I would wager that like five times as many people are playing Delva easily. 
Yeah, there is so many Delver players because it is a deck that, like, we are we are having Legacy as predominantly an online format now, and Delver is like always accepted as quote unquote the best deck. And Magic Online has a lot of grinders trying to win, and I think the numbers of people playing this deck are just like heightened strongly by that, and all the results we're getting are with that. So yeah, Delver's results are pushed up a little bit from that. But if you had gun to my head, I'd be saying. Rug Delver and Esper Vile and Elves. Oh, Esper Vile. Oh, yeah, yeah. For the best decks. The thing about Elves is it's always like, I don't want to say easy to hate out, but Plague Engineer surely is a beating. And one of the things, like, while I've been enjoying Elves lately is because Plague Engineer is somewhat at a low. Like, I face it every now and then, but it's not like it's always going to come down on turn two. But yeah. Uh, Something interesting, by the way, that I wonder if, like, these builds of Delver that we're seeing right now, all these like super heavy mid-range decks. I always wonder whether A and T aren't is just gonna come in and destroy them because like in the first game, like none of their cards almost matter. Yeah. You would assume so. I just it's it's hard to sum up exactly, but Ant is just kind of the power level has fallen down a bit, maybe. No, that's, that's not far, that, that, that sounds wrong in my head now, I think about it. I'm not sure. Like uh I think it's probably very good against Delver. But there's a lot of other harder matchups, I suppose. Like Tower is, Sticks um, are still everywhere. Something, yeah, something that Delver didn't have, have before is Stratod Arcanist. And yeah, that's, that's going to put you into a position where you, you got so much filtering going on at that point. And, and even sometimes just like killing you out of nowhere. Like that card can seven you like in a single turn very easily. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And it's not a card you actually want to bring in like a prep decay for. That's so awkward, especially because of the mana. So yeah, I guess somebody who's more familiar with the deck, we'd be happy to hear about that in the comments, like wherever you want on Twitter at EternalMTG yeah. or in our Discord if you're one of our patrons. What's what's the deal about A&T right now? Where, where, yeah, where I am handing me a, a very, very bad Storm player. So I'm definitely not the best person to ask. But I'll, <laughs> I'll be very interested in hearing some of the better, or actually any of the Storm players, what they think, like why the deck is good or why the deck is bad. It Open your heart. Like Tell us about your struggles. Yes. How many skulls can you make? <laughs> cool. So we have awesome. a last section of uh, deck building philosophy, which is sideboarding. This is uh, one of the most, like, I, I'm sure I did it so badly when I was younger and learning things, and I probably still do very badly. And it's very easy to gloss over and be lazy about, but there are some fundamentals about sideboarding that I think is so important that you just can't afford to get too wrong. Uh, why don't you tell us about them, Julian? Oh, so to me, the most important thing about sideboarding is like sideboarding is the, is the one thing I'm, I'm the most passionate about when it comes to building a sideboard because I feel I've, I'm doing it very differently from not a lot of people, but a lot of people who ask me about stuff somehow. Like somehow the people who ask me the most questions about sideboarding are the ones who have a very different approach to it than me. And to me, like the most important thing is, do you want to have your sideboard so you can play magic? Or like, it, okay, that sounds so arrogant, but. Basically, what I want to say is, do you want to build your sideboard so you can so you get to play Magic in game two and three, or do you want to build your sideboard so you get to win the tournament? And that's, I mean, it sounds so arrogant, and that's not how I no, mean no, it. No, no, I but get it. Yeah, the thing is, sometimes I feel like people are like, oh, and now I have two copies of this, so I can play better against this kind of combo deck, and now I have like three copies of this, so I can play better against like this kind of fringe combo deck. And yeah, I also have like this one card, which will help me with the, 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 the control matchup or something. And for a lot of decks, that's not really what you can do. Because the thing is, unless you're playing, I don't know, a very, very even deck, then like, for example, I guess most Deva decks are rather balanced. They get away with a lot of stuff. But especially if you're playing non-blue decks, 
my philosophy for a long, long time has been that I pick the top four, maybe five decks in the format, and those I target really, really hard. Like, I want to make it so that once we go to sideboarding, I look at four or six copies of something, and I'm like, yes, this is, like, if this is my opening hand, if I've ever drawn this in the first couple of turns, it's, maybe it's not going to win me the game, but it's going to be really good. And for, I, I usually make fun of the sideboards where people had, like, a fourth snapcast and stuff, and that's actually a kind of different philosophy, and that's also, like, part of me being fed up with Top Miracles at some point, where I was like, oh, this is decadence. <laughs> yeah. Like, you guys had a challenge where you just played a 15th sideboard card just for fun to, to like, <laughs> anything, like Dwarf and Pony or something, so maybe that's oh, we, some we, PTSD we did the from there. challenge, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's something most decks can't do. So most decks really, yeah. I really truly feel if you want to win the tournament, you got to pick your spots and then you just got to be comfortable getting lucky because those are the decks you're most likely to play against. And then if you run into some stupid kind of deck that you don't really have tech for, so be it. I mean, that's really just how it goes. I, I, I remember MKM, Card Market, Barcelona 2017. I played Elves. And before the tournament, they actually did an interview with me. And I was like, I'm feeling really, really good about this list. The only thing where, that I cannot beat is Sneak Show. So very first round, I lose to Sneak Show. It's like, okay, that happens. You, <laughs> then you I went seven in a row. There. Yeah, pretty much right. Then I went seven in a row, I make top eight. Nice. And in the quarterfinals, I lose to Sneak Show again. I mean, that's just how, what happens. The thing is, it, this is one of those matchups that's not worth trying to beat in the first place. There's like You can play Confusion in the ranks if you want to. Or even just something mm -hmm. else, but Confusion's ranks is one of the best you can do. Yeah. But it's not fucking worth it. It's better to just have more discard because that's more applicable against other kind of combo decks, like Storm is more, was more popular, and also okay. playing against control decks. And this this is where I want to be. You, you try to have some kind of spread, like you want your stuff to cover as much as possible, but there's a certain minimum number, certain minimum level of power in my sideboard cards that I don't want to go under just because it spreads it even further. It's like basically you have like you have like your bread and you're spreading your butt on it and then a jelly comes on. There's a certain <laughs> density of jelly you want. And if if you go below that, then it's not even like a proper bread anymore, even though you are... I got, I, <laughs> you know what this I mean, a, right? Yeah, yeah, I completely understand. This is a great uh, way of putting it. Yeah. So the, the bottom line you're saying is, yeah, you, you can't be too fancy with your sideboard. You, like, if you have too many ones and twos of, you're not going to reliably draw them as well in enough of the games. You can try and have them overlap and stuff, but you... The main thing is you can't be everything, and it's not worth trying to be everything for for a huge amount of decks and so for you for elves i know your com i don't even know what your co like current deck is but i'm gonna guess it has four ley lines and four abrupt decays and like three or four thought seizers yeah it, you, you're really good really good <laughs> i have four <laughs> abrupt decays because the, the just like um dreadful arcanist is such a big pain in the ass yeah and yeah. actually we don't have ley lines right now i have six discards okay. five or six discard spells depending on how many i want three surgicals and then i recently added two carpet of flowers again because carpet of flowers just so insanely good against delver and actually, then yeah. progenitors and collectors. you're just like really hard targeting delver now so you have carpets and decays like there's a lot of cards to bring in for a match of the earth it's probably not bad already so like this this is clearly you just saying i am not willing to lose to delver with my and yet deck. I might still, right? We, we talked yeah. about this a couple of like a week earlier on Twitter where there's only like so good... Your matchup against Delver can only be so good unless your deck is inherently horrible. Then yeah. then your matchup can maybe be better. But Delver is just like yeah. so optimized that yeah. if you struggle a little bit, even if you have uncountable abrupt decays, it's... 
there are certain games that are completely out of reach for you, and that's part of the appeal of Delva. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you if you replicated an Arcanist a turn late, it's still up one card and traded on mana. It's hard. It's tough. And like tying tying into this, you need to understand what your deck is doing and like how to build a sideboard off the back of that. It sounds pretty obvious, but if you're building a combo deck, you need to be ready for like the hate that people are bringing for you. You need to be checking out all the top decks, what kind of sideboards they have. Like if you see loads of uh, mind break traps being played in the format, because another deck like Tez, for example, is doing well, you need to be like, if you're another combo deck, you need to be trying to play under that, like play discard, not um, not Veil of Summer, for example. So you need to be aware of what hate people are going to be bringing against you. So that's mostly true for combo decks. So Elves does fall into that category a bit. But for fair, this is where you get to have a bit more flexibility and a bit more spread. You can pro- you don't need to like hard target decks as much because you are the reactive deck and you need to be thinking, okay, well, I need to beat Delver. That's number one usually. I need to beat these combo decks, but you do have generic things like counter magic is usually good against combo decks. So you have a bit more flexibility there. That's where Snapcaster Mage comes in. The cyborg Snapcaster Mage. I just want to shout from the roof how good, how good that card was because it, it was your fifth Pyroblast. It was your third Surgical Extraction. It was your fourth Fluster Storm. It was, it was everything. As long as you play enough of those cards in, in the first place. But yeah, I, I think it really is worth hammering home. Like you said, it's just, do not try and beat these fringe decks unless you just play it like a local game store level. Then, by all means, try and metagame against your friends. But in the grand scheme of things, you can't just like play very narrow sideboard cards. It's, it's, a, it's a losing game. Yeah, definitely. And something that we also touched on is always be mindful of how your opponent is actually going to adjust to your strategy, how, like what you bring in. And that goes back to, like, we, we have these historic examples because they are so well understood, especially involving Top Miracles. And that's when people were like, oh, you really got to have Choke or Seven Library against Top Miracles, for example, out of Elves. And the problem really, like, the, the, the thing that made Seven Library work in the first place was that the, the effect was actually permanent if you got to, like, it would usually just keep whatever cards I would see just because I knew that very quickly I would eventually just, like, lose the library. Whereas Choke was something, eh... Yeah. yeah, and while it looks good on paper, you know that your opponent is blind bringing in um, uh, wear tear almost, and that once again put us into positions where we were like, okay, should we were not bringing in any kind of enchantments or artifacts, and they're gonna have those two wear tears. Well, I guess it still work well with counterbalance, but but you get the idea, right? So be yeah. aware of what they're doing and whether what you are doing is worth the the potential extra risk that you're putting yourself under. Absolutely. So yeah, that's that's our our thoughts on sideboarding. I guess you you mentioned that it's important to have a sideboard map, which is really at least it says on the show notes. You actually didn't. Mention oh yes, that. <laughs> yes, I, I brushed over this. Um, this is something you need, don't need to do straight away, but I think it's important to do it once you become like very familiar with your deck. So it's not something you're gonna do as soon as you build a list and like start plotting things out. But a good exercise I like to do with this is once you're as I said familiar with everything, I like to just get the deck in front of me and lay it all out and then go through like mtg goldfish and then write down every single deck the first 10 decks of the last month or whatever putting it results whatever you deem to be like the top two tiers of decks basically and then go through every single one and take out every single card in your main deck that you think you could see siding out you definitely want out so against delver you want to cut like force of negation maybe a jace uh, maybe one or two force of wills or something like that from the shark 
control deck we were talking about earlier. So you get a rough idea of how many cards you want to cut from the main deck. So you think, okay, Delver, I want to cut six to eight cards. Then next along, say there's Elves. You think, okay, I don't want this, I don't want that, I don't want these cards. And you think, okay, I want to cut four to five cards against Elves. And then so on and so on until you, you have like a list of roughly all the decks that you want to take out this number of cards. Then you can see where your holes are and see where your flexibility is. So this is where you can start to get some overlap in, in answers. So I can see like, okay, against like, so this is a very common thing for blue-white decks that have Source of Plowshares and Wrath of Gods and stuff. You see Ant and Sneak and Show. These are going to like stick out to you as you want 10 cards for them, for example. So you need to start thinking, okay, if I want 10 cards for these matchups, you need to overlap, like Vendelian Click is the classic card for blue, for blue decks to create this uh, overlap and things then just go through every single one and i feel like then being able to have this overview of every single matchup how many cards you want to take out gives you a much easier time of building a sideboard from the ground up you think okay um, i want to have five cards for for graveyard decks for example because you can start lumping them together as well you can think okay this is combo where source splashes is bad this is a control mirror where these cards are bad and so every single little piece of information you get to yourself. You can write down notes at the same time. You're like, okay, I don't want these here or there. And it all starts to piece together in the end. For me anyway, this is how I do it. Uh, it all starts to make sense towards the end and you you build up this sideboard. And very often, this is going to give you flaws in your main deck. So the the one Eternal Weekend that I top-aided with you, I had two spare days before the weekend. So I spent hours and hours just going through everything. And I ended up changing three or four cards in the main deck, which I was I was positive the main deck was great before it. But then I ended up changing a bunch of cards because it just didn't work with the sideboard maps. And so in hindsight, I think that was pretty key. A lot of the cards came up and it worked out. So yeah, this, this is where you can really put the time in and go over things meticulously and work it out and think you make your sideboard maps perfect. And then new cards get released and break the format and everything goes to shit. But <laughs> anyway, that's, that's my process. So the, I think I would say to, to sum it up, I think the, the relevant concept here is that of marginal value, which means like you compare how good is the card in the matchup that you're taking out to how good is the card that you're bringing in. And for the first couple of cards, you're going to have like a huge margin of, of power level. But as you bring in more cards, the cards you take out become better and better in the matchup until you get to a point where, yes, you're bringing in a card that is like a 10 in the matchup, or let's say a, a 7, but the card you're taking out is a 5. So even though the card you're bringing yeah. in is a 7 in the matchup, the marginal value really is only 2. And that's what hap that ha basically happens when people have too many cards for a certain matchup and then they oversight for, for a certain matchup. And what that usually does is it leaves other matchups more exposed where you're taking out like i don't know a three and you bring in a four which is like just this embarrassing thing that you bring in because you might cycle it at some point and this is something yeah. that comes either with like like you mentioned drawing it all up making a sideboard mm. plan or even just like playing i notice especially on matching online when, I, when i'm in the sideboarding window it it often becomes very obvious because i would put all the cards i want to bring in like in one column and then i, I move the cards that i want to take out right next to them and sometimes i see there's like a discrepancy i want to bring in more i want to or sometimes it's actually not that uncommon that you want to take out yeah, more cards I, I do the same thing that's something you can also like just practice in Magic Online. If you like, even if you don't have all the cards, you can create a deck. If you set the quality, there's a thing, uh, the quantity thing at the very top of of the client to zero, then you can build any kind of deck, even if you don't have the cards. And once you did that, you can just move around the cards um, visually, which sometimes is easier than to just write it down. Where you go, like, okay, minus five this, yeah, plus point. five this, and yeah. stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that's something I, I would sometimes do with IFs. Yeah, this also exposes like all the holes in it. Like, so we said in the main deck, you can think, okay, I have, I I need to make room for so I can like sideboard out ten cards against combo, and um, and vice versa. You might think, oh shit, I have I have like too too many cards to bring in against combo now. I need to like correct that in some way because if you if you have too many cards to bring in in certain matchups, you're spewing value by not having using those slots to help another matchup as well. So this is balance of all 15 cards working out with the main deck. And this is what people talk about when they say building a 75, not 60 and 15. So it's a lot of work. It's it's meticulous sometimes, but it's really worth going through and checking everything in your head and thinking, knowing exactly why it's there in the beginning as well. Uh, since you mentioned the, the building the 75, are you familiar with the, the concept of elephanting? I've heard this. Maybe even you told me the other day. But no, yeah, so the, the general idea is that you... you build your entire 75 basically as a main deck almost and you you just put in all the cards that you might want for certain matchups and stuff and then from that you just put out 15 cards and put them into the sideboard so you're not like okay this is my main deck how do i fix the problems in my main deck you basically you you create individual 60 card decks for the different matchups and then you you take all those those 60 card decks that at maximum are using 75 different cards and put them together in a single main deck and then from there you you so you basically you're not bringing in cards you're actually before you submit the deck you side out 15 cards so that's mm -hmm. that's something i've never really done that but i I've know that that's so it sounds great i've yeah I've, i think sam black talked about it on, on their podcast uh, a couple of years ago and i've always thought about doing that in legacy because apparently that's something yeah. a lot of pros actually do but they really construct their their 75 by by removing 15 cards from a giant main deck and and having a deck like that so it's not like like i mentioned it's not okay i'm gonna fix a couple of holes it's more like oh i'm gonna have the most efficient thing and then i'm gonna have some more other stuff in the sideboard it's kind of interesting i'm gonna give that a go definitely oh awesome what are you gonna give a go later tonight are you, are you i think we have we've gone, gone through pretty much anything here i'm gonna jump into valorant and then i'm actually gonna be um we're gonna record on leaving a legacy they invited me yeah you're doing the double trouble Bang, Double bang. trouble, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For me, oh, I'm going to... I mentioned that uh, Shark Typhoon slash Lands kind of idea. I'm going to tinker around with that. Maybe I, maybe I elephant it up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on that. Um, what's, the mo what's the most playable elephant on Legacy? Rogue Elephant. Exactly, Rogue Elephant. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> awesome. Easy, got it. Or Elephant so. Ambush gets the shout out for the coolest elephant card. <laughs> the, the, the flavor is just amazing right yeah completely ambushed by an elephant like when people have the, those ninjas that are secretly elephants like somebody just anyway <laughs> we are getting too deep there. where can people find you on social media uh social media i am on whitefaces mtg at twitter so at whitefaces mtg uh yeah that's the best place to find me i'm not super active on the other places i haven't streamed for a little bit i know i like to do it sometimes it's been a little bit of a while so maybe i should kick it up soon awesome uh, yeah if you guys want to find me i'm at it's julian 23 on twitter and twitch tv slash it's julian uh you can also check out my website it's julian.com where you might or might not have found this podcast if you want to see the show notes they're on there for sure you can also follow our eternal uh everyday eternal twitter which is at eternal mtg so check that out we, we've actually been growing a lot of followers over there 
And that's, that's just amazing to see that people actually are, are signing up to that because that account is actually incredibly old. That account goes back to like 2013 when the podcast was first established. Wow. But we've, we've got a decent number of followers by now. So but nice. better be careful. The, the more pictures of us with wine and, and beer <laughs> we post, like this is actually like an alcohol podcast where they talk about magic as well. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> I can something. talk about beers if you want to one time. Oh, dude, I hate beer, but that's a different episode. <laughs> we will fight about this sometime. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you want to support the podcast, there's a Patreon for us. Patreon.com slash Everyday Channel. Uh, just like our new Patreon, actually, we have Chris Martin on our Thalia Guardian of Thrain tier. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us, for supporting the running of the show. And, of course, we have our longtime supporters on the Eternal Witness tier. Matt Nance, Valerio, James Slack, and Victor Bernanst. And our top tier, Grizzlebrand tier, we have Bachu, Bach, Scott Monroe, Kulush, Alice Day, Jeremy Gates, and Ducks on Twitch. So thank you so much for helping us run this. Like, this, this, guys, you have no idea how much of a difference this makes. You can not only support us monetarily, it really helps out if you go to iTunes. Um, that's the one I'm I'm most concerned with. <laughs> like, I go to that every day now. Uh, there, there are other rating platforms as well, but the, iTunes is the biggest one, right? If people search for a podcast and you give us a f- maybe a five-star rating if you enjoy it quite a bit, then that's going to help us out a lot. That's going to help future people out a lot who are looking for legacy podcasts. So that's also something, you, last but not least, the really just like the bigger thing is spread the word. Let people know, hey, that's this cool legacy podcast. And then there's also Everyday Eternal. So maybe if you want to listen to another Wait, one, there's that one. I thought we were a beer podcast. We're, we actually were supposed to be a vintage podcast at the very beginning, but that was seven ah. years ago. So now we're at Legacy. Like seven years from now, we might talk about modern. Who knows? Right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's it for us tonight. Hope you like the show. You can, if you join the Patreon on any kind of tier, you get access to our Everyday Eternal Discord where you can meet awesome people and engage with everybody from the cast. And yeah, I think that with that, we're going to call it a day. See you again in August. God, like time is flying. Bye bye. See you. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. Thank you so much.